Welcome to the China in the World podcast, a series of discussions examining China's foreign policy and shifting engagement with the world. The China in the World podcast is brought to you by Carnegie China and hosted by me, Paul Hanley. Welcome back to the China in the World podcast. This is the third episode of the 10-year anniversary series for China in the World. In this series, I examine the more than 180 interviews I have conducted over the past 10 years to help put current international issues in context. In this episode, I look back on 10 years of North Korea-related issues, including the nuclear, diplomatic, and geopolitical dimensions. Developments on the Korean Peninsula have undergone major changes since the launch of the China in the World podcast 10 years ago. In 2011, Kim Jong-un succeeded his father, Kim Jong-il, as supreme leader of North Korea, beginning his tenure with a series of internal purges and a more assertive military posture. While the Obama administration was able to reach a moratorium agreement on nuclear and long-range missile tests with North Korea in February 2012, called the Leap Day Agreement, the agreement was short-lived. Just weeks later, the Leap Day Agreement was severed as Pyongyang conducted a satellite launch in April 2012, attempting to send the Kwang Myung Song 3 into orbit. Between 2013 and 2016, North Korea held three nuclear tests, followed in 2017 by North Korea's first successful test of an intercontinental ballistic missile capable of striking the United States, the Hwangsong-15. A subsequent war of words between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump resulted in their first meeting, the first meeting between a sitting U.S. president and a North Korean leader, and it took place in Singapore in 2018, followed by Kim's self-imposed moratorium on nuclear and long-range tests, which was broken in February 2022. Since the Biden administration entered office, North Korea has conducted over 40 missile tests, including five intercontinental ballistic missile launches, while spurning diplomatic overtures from the United States. This episode helps shed light on the evolution of all these developments on the Korean Peninsula over the past 10 years. I hope our listeners will enjoy this episode and tune in again next month for another China in the World Look Back episode. Enjoy. July's military parade in Pyongyang proves just how senior this man was. Jang Song-tek was at the North Korean leader's right hand, at the very heart of this regime, he was Kim Jong-un's uncle and mentor, married to the sister of the former leader, Kim Jong-il. It's certainly ruthless, but it also potentially represents a seismic shift for North Korean politics and not one the world will be comfortable with, not least China, North Korea's only ally. Mr. Chang was effectively China's man in the North Korean regime, the interlocutor between Beijing and Pyongyang. Without him, China's attempt to keep Kim Jong-un in check could be harder. In the following interview, recorded in December 2013, I spoke with Dr. Zhu Feng, who at the time was a professor at Beijing University's School of International Studies. We spoke about Kim Jong-un's internal power struggles and the implications for North Korea's foreign policy. 
So some are predicting uh, that North Korea, Kim Jong-un, will commit further pro provocations early in 2014, possibly a fourth nuclear test, to further prove his consolidation of power. So I think there's such a domestic and propaganda uh, agenda of unbelievably full uh, after Chang uh, Tech, you know, uh, was purged. But I don't think the young leader will be distracted from just uh, provoking uh, very recklessly uh, for uh, its relations with the international community. On the other hand, I, I think if the young leader would like to provoke one second, they would completely alienate the region. And it keeps China uh, not just angry, but also very irritated. So then, um, I think that will be some sort of uh, critical suicide or very similar uh, for the uh, DPRK China relations. In the next interview, recorded in March 2014, I spoke with Dr. Wang Dong, a professor at Beijing University, about China's evolving policy toward North Korea. So uh, there, there has been some talk about this, and I'm aware that denuclearization has turned sort of moved up in terms of the priority of the Chinese mm -hmm. leadership. Mm -hmm. uh, and you see this, I think you can look at the statements that are made yeah. by Chinese leaders and, and, and you, can, you can detect some of this. Yeah. Can you give us a sense, however, from a policy standpoint or mm -hmm. from a, a Chinese behavior or how China's responding to certain things that North Korea does, how sure. can foreign observers see uh, in a concrete way yeah. that this has changed and yeah. denuclearization yeah. is now yeah. more important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I first want well, like to say I fully agree with your observation. This is also my personal mm -hmm. uh, observation and, uh, and, and uh, conviction as well. Um, uh, let me give you, I think, a few uh, very concrete uh, examples or evidence, if you, if you like. Uh, I think first is that I think China actually, uh, I think uh, along with the United States, uh, work out this most recent round of uh, sanction regime yeah. uh, through the uh, UN Security Council. So this is one first, you know, example you want to to cite. This uh, is in the uh, aftermath. Yeah, of in the aftermath of the third nuclear test. The, the nuclear uh, test. So China, I think, has been quite strict in mm -hmm. uh, in terms of implementing uh, the sanctions. And you m may also remember last year. Uh, the Ministry of Commerce uh, published a list of items, you know, that are supposed to uh, on the sanction list, and that's uh, a lot of observers. I think mm -hmm. uh, 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 pay a lot of attention to that because this is quite something extraordinary. It's mm -hmm. actually unprecedented, yeah. never happened before. Yeah. And uh, and I would take this as a very positive um, uh, indication of that mm -hmm. China, you know, is essentially is making a public, you know, mm -hmm. uh, statement to mm -hmm. the international community that we are quite serious about this, of course. Yeah. At the same time, also sending a very strong message, you know, to North Korea that, you know, you, you, you better to, uh, yeah. to, 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 to you know, because we are very serious about this. The Democratic People's Republic of Korea has test-fired a ballistic missile from a submarine off its eastern coast. South Korea's military said the missile was fired in early hours of Wednesday morning near the coastal city of Singapore. The Defense Ministry official said the DPRK's missile technology appeared to have advanced 
compared with previous launches as the warhead flew around 500 kilometers before crashing into the sea. This next recording comes from an interview with Admiral Gary Ruffhead in September 2016. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about North Korea. Uh, just this week, they've conducted their fifth nuclear test. It's, uh, it was the largest test that they've conducted. Um, they've done uh, a lot of missile tests this year, um, and they did their first ever successful uh, missile launch from a submarine, uh, which uh, all of this combined gives them enhanced capabilities and moves them closer, of course, to being able to put a nuclear warhead on a missile uh, and potentially range the United States. Um, how do these um, enhanced capabilities, how do you see these, especially the submarine aspect of being able to launch uh, missiles from submarine, how does this change the equation for us? Well, I think it, it changes it in a couple ways. One, uh, the continued nuclear testing is uh, very problematic. Uh, it's an issue that I believe not just the United States and China need to deal with, but uh, on a global basis. This is a significant serious development, particularly given the nature of the leadership and particularly the, the, the judgment that's been displayed by the leader in North Korea. So that's uh, on the higher level that's in play. But I think it also indicates that, um, that, that the potential for North Korea to threaten the region and eventually the United States uh, has moved into a new domain. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 we, you know we can talk about various defensive systems, but the the advent of a submarine as a potential la launching mechanism is is significant, um, and and this is not a new threat because if you go back a few years and you remember the sinking of the Chaonan, mm -hmm. um, that was done by a submarine, and so we we now have to become very very serious about this. Yeah, make the investments and this is a regional issue, make the investments in anti-submarine warfare, maritime mm. domain awareness, intelligence sharing, so that there can be a common intelligence picture of what may be moving, what may be in port, what may have left port. And so I think it's important that, that regionally we begin to pull this together. Mm -hmm. I think it also means uh, that as these uh, capabilities are developed, and particularly um, the, the uh, advent of a submarine as a launching platform, uh, that there has to be a realistic view by countries in the region that we and our allies will put in place the defensive mechanisms that we need to assure the safety of our people, of our allies, and the region. Uh, and because the warning times now that are able to be discerned from the operation of a submarine yeah. are significantly reduced. So there has to be an acceptance and openness and a realization uh, that that modern, effective, frontline missile defense systems are going to have to be in play until the behavior and the actions of North Korea change. Yeah. In the next audio clip, I interviewed Carnegie China's senior fellow, Tong Zhao in October 2017 about China's North Korea calculus under the Trump administration. The North Koreans tend to say that the reason they're building their nuclear program is because they feel under threat by the United States. And I think we've heard this um, 
from the North Koreans time and time again. I think the one thing to keep in mind, at least from an American standpoint, is that I think our friends in South Korea and Japan, and increasingly the United States, uh, are feeling under threat from the North Koreans. Um, and it, it no longer is kind of this one, one-sided threat. Um, clearly, the enhanced capabilities on the, on the North Korean side in terms of its nuclear program, missile program, um, are creating a great deal of anxiety in the region. So I understand you know, your point that the Chinese uh, policymakers don't frankly think that more pressure will get the desired outcome that we're looking for. Plus, the North Korean missiles are not pointing at China right now, and China doesn't want those missiles pointed at them. Um, and so if Chinese leaders conclude more pressure is not the answer, um, what, what is the answer? I mean, what can we do to uh, stop and reverse the progress that North Korea has made in its nuclear program? As I understand it, Chinese leaders and policymakers uh, are opposed to North Korea's nuclear development. So we have, in that regard, we have similar goals. First of all, I think it's not uncommon for countries to have different threat perceptions. In the case of U.S. North Korea, I think both countries feel mutually threatened. Right. And it's, it's you know, not a surprise at all. As the director, director for National Intelligence, James Clapper, pointed out recently, you know, North Korea is a very paranoid country. Um, so, you know, I think we have to uh, base our decision making on the understanding that North Korea really believes mm-hmm. it itself is genuinely threatened. Well, for the Chinese view, in the China believes um, the only long-term approach to address the North Korean crisis is that we have to uh, somehow, uh, in a gradualistic approach, to bring North Korea back as a normal member of the international community. And the best way to do that is through gradually encouraging North Korea to liberalize and open up its economy. Mm. And over time, that hopefully will lead to greater degrees of social and political openness. Um, That seems to the Chinese as the only nonviolent way to solve the problem. So for China, instead of making it harder for North Korea to do trade with the outside world, Mm Instead of making it harder for North Korean laborers to work in foreign countries to expose themselves to the outside world, instead of making it harder for North Koreans to open restaurants and other business in foreign countries, we should encourage this. This is the way that we you know, introduce North Koreans mm-hmm. to the outside world. We encourage people to meet for exchanges encourage information flow into North Korea. In the next interview, I spoke to Evans Revere, former Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs, to discuss North Korea's intercontinental ballistic missile tests in July 2017. How, in your view, has the U.S. changed their response to the North Korea threat? What what do you think uh, is the overall strategy in terms of pressure and trying to get North Korea to give up its nuclear weapons? Uh, You could see the 
the change, the shift in U.S. strategy actually at the very tail end of the Obama administration, uh, after that fifth nuclear test, there was, a, I think, a real sea change in Washington. Mm-hmm. And people realized that the, uh, the, the nightmare day uh, of, of when North Korea would be able to strike the United States with a, a nuclear weapon was moving that much closer. And so you started to see a rapid ramping up of sanctions and other pressures on North Korea. Uh, and building on that foundation, uh, I think the, the Trump administration has taken a, a number of steps beyond that now uh, of putting together a, uh, uh, an approach that is focused on applying uh, a, a concentrated, overwhelming and unprecedented and very comprehensive uh, uh, array of pressures on North Korea in the economic realm, in the banking realm, in the, uh, the uh, economic and trade sanctions realm, uh, information operations, uh, a very sophisticated package of measures uh, that appear to be designed to send a message to the North Korean regime that uh, we, the Trump administration, are going to put a level of pressure on you that you've never seen before mm-hmm. uh, and compel you to make a choice between continuing to go down the path that you're on developing nuclear weapons. And if you do, this level of pressure could amount to the, uh, the, the, the package of pressures that could destabilize the regime if we took it to its logical conclusion. I think the premise of this approach is that the one thing that North Korea values more than, or treasures, I guess mm-hmm. a better word, treasures more than its nuclear weapons is its regime and the preservation of the regime. They have been developing nuclear weapons in their minds Mm -hmm. to maintain the regime. Mm -hmm. So the message to them is the net effect of what you're doing is going to be to undermine the regime. Mm -hmm. And so by applying this level of pressure, comprehensive, unprecedented, overwhelming, uh, you are sending a message to the leadership. You have to make this choice now. Mm -hmm. Nukes or survival. You can't have both. The next recording comes from an interview in September 2017 with Dr. Tong Zhao, senior fellow at Carnegie China, on China's red lines toward North Korea. After significant events like the sixth nuclear test, uh, my own sense is that the United States steps back and wonders, policymakers, whether or not this provides a greater opportunity for the U.S. and China to cooperate, that perhaps This was the event that crossed the Chinese red line, um, where where Chinese leaders say, enough is enough. We really need to work closer with the United States and maybe even partner with the United States on on putting more pressure on North Korea to give up its nuclear program or come back to the negotiating table to talk about giving up its nuclear program. Um, Is that... that a possibility in the aftermath of the sixth nuclear test. Did it cross any Chinese le- red line? And if not, are there red lines that China has drawn that North Korea might cross in the future? How do you see and analyze this dynamic of U.S.-China cooperation? Um, I know that there are geostrategic considerations here, and I wanted to get your sense of those. I personally don't see the recent nuclear test as crossing a Chinese red line. I don't think there is any clear red line on the Chinese part. Um, If there is some major incident 
like if North Korea conducts another nuclear test, that they screwed up and released a massive amount of radioactive materials that spread to China and raised the general public fear, um, caused social instability, that could fundamentally change Chinese calculations. Or if North Korea goes so far as to launch a real nuclear warhead on the top of a missile in another test, simply to test their capability to mate a real nuclear warhead to their missile, and they shoot the missile towards the middle of the, of the Pacific Ocean and detonate the nuclear warhead in the, in the atmosphere. That would break a long-held nuclear taboo. Mm-hmm. I think those type of events could fundamentally change Chinese calculations. But short of that, I don't see... I think the Chinese basic calculations about its own geostrategic interests on the peninsula will remain the same. In the next audio recording, I interviewed Dr. Cheng Xiaohe from Renmin University about Chinese views of North Korea. When, when people ask me about China's stance on North Korea, I often say the level of frustration in China regarding North Korea is the highest that I've ever seen it. But the policy has not changed in any fundamental way. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, partially agrees. Mm. Uh, on the one hand, uh, yes, and uh, more and more Chinese be, become frustrated and disappointed with North Korea's. But on the other hand, China's policy, even though has not changed in a very significant ways, but it is changing. It's changing in the incremental ways. Mm-hmm. And now we are reached to the point that no significant change needed. And for examples, China initially opposed economic sanctions, but now China agreed to impose economic sanctions against North Korea, even though even China agreed to to impose a cap on North Korea's oil uh, import. That demonstrates a very important changes on China's policy, even though such a kind of changes is quite incremental. Mm-hmm. But when the incremental changes accumulate mm-hmm. to a one point, uh, we may draw the conclusions mm-hmm. that the incremental changes constitute a big changes. I think there's a Chinese Chengyu, Ji Xiao Chengduo. Yes. In the next interview, I joined Carnegie Vice President for Communications and Strategy, Jen Saki on the Carnegie Endowment's Diplopod to discuss Chinese perspectives on North Korea and the outcomes of Trump's visit to Beijing in November 2017. President Trump just finished a a trip to Beijing and across Asia. Is there overlap between what the United States defines as a solution to the crisis and what China defines as a solution? And has there been any change in that regard? Well, when President Trump was out here, uh, you know, there was a joint, there was joint language which was negotiated on the North Korea issue, and there is some overlap. Um, and, and it's important to sort of identify that, you know, it's not that we're completely at odds over this issue. Um, there is overlap on one, on process. Um, the joint language that was negotiated agreed that both countries will work together to resolve the Korean Peninsula issue through dialogue. 
Um, I think that's the preferred sort of process that both the U.S. and China would like to undertake. In terms of the objective, the language was very clear, and it said that the countries seek full, verifiable, and irreversible denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. This was the same language we used in the Bush, administ Bush administration. It indicates that neither China nor the United States uh, will accept North Korea as a nuclear weapon state. But there are different, different priorities, I think, um, by China and the U.S., and there's a lot of distrust in the relationship that prevents us really from making the kind of progress that we, we would hope to achieve. China puts stability really over all else. Uh, and in terms of the distrust, they're worried that the United States really has an ultimate objective to overthrow the regime in North Korea, which China doesn't see uh, in its interest to do so. Uh, and then beyond that, there's other reasons why China is hesitant to fundamentally shift its policy on North Korea. There's a historical relationship between the two countries. North Korea, they see as a strategic buffer zone between China and U.S. ally South Korea. And then, of course, the ramifications of regime collapse and a humanitarian crisis. You know, China doesn't see that in its interest. And it doesn't, frankly, at the end of the day, and this is really important, people need to understand, China doesn't want to turn its neighbor, North Korea, into its enemy overnight especially as it reaches the point where it is going to obtain the capability potentially to put a nuclear device on a missile that could range countries in the region, maybe even the United States. The following audio clip comes from an interview with Dr. Jia Qingguo, professor at Beijing University's School of International Studies in May 2018 about China's approach to North Korea. Uh, what is the desired end state that we should be seeking with respect to the North Korea issue? Do we have agreement between the United States and China in terms of what we're trying to achieve from a broad perspective? Well, I think uh, the desired end state uh, is twofold. One is uh, denuclearization of North Korea. The second is uh, to bring North Korea into the existing international system and try to help it mm -hmm. to uh, be stable and prosperous. We are still working on it by uh, taking a sort of two-pronged approach. One is uh, to increase sanctions to push North Korea uh, to give up its nuclear weapons. Uh, the other is uh, uh, still, uh, you know, hope that North Korea would come back to the negotiation table, uh, and uh, uh, so that we can go back to the earlier agreement mm -hmm. on uh, how to, uh, uh, you know, help North Korea uh, back uh, to uh, uh, sort of to become a sort of normal state. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. if it promises to give up nuclear weapons. The next recording comes from an interview with Dr. Tong Zhao, senior fellow at Carnegie China, in December 2019, about Trump and Kim's second summit in Hanoi, Vietnam. It does seem that um, during the maximum pressure campaign, where China and the U.S. were cooperating, um, it was having some uh, positive impact. Um, but that seems to have changed 
uh, when uh, Donald Trump announced that he would meet with Kim Jong-un. What was the thinking in China, and how has this changed? Why is this different now, in your view? Um, you know, immediately when the news came that uh, President Trump might be willing to meet with Kim Jong-un in person, there was this immediate concern that is was widely heard within the experts community in Beijing that um, the U.S.-North Korea relationship could uh, get too close too quickly and Beijing's role would become marginalized in the future and Beijing could lose its influence uh, over what is going to happen uh, to the security landscape and structure of the Korean Peninsula. Uh, so that concern, I think, uh, was a major factor uh, that led to uh, China to decide to have their summit meeting with um, Kim Jong-un. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned before, quickly within 15 months, they had five summit meetings yeah. uh, compared with the previous several years when they have zero summit meeting. Yeah. Uh, so the Chinese concern about marginalization losing uh, influence is a very important factor. And this would only become more important as now China believes the U.S. is doing everything to undermine China and uh, there is less uh, perceived common interest here to work with the United States. In the following interview conducted in May 2020, I spoke with Chung Min Lee, senior fellow at Carnegie's Asia program, about the impact of COVID-19 on the Korean Peninsula. The reason why Kim Jong-un is doing all these tests is because he wants the world to say, here I am, please pay attention to me. America is in the worst throes of this pandemic. China has come out of this worst pandemic. South Korea is still going through this. So nobody is paying attention to the DPRK. And that's what makes Kim Jong-un a little bit testy, because he says, I want to make a difference in your foreign policies, but please see what I can do to damage your interests. And I think President Xi realizes, you know what, as much as I care about the DPRK, China has much bigger fry. China has much bigger concerns with the U.S. China basically is going to say, as we rise in the world, North Korea can be an asset, but also a huge problem. That is President Xi's problem as much as it is for President Moon in South Korea. In February 2020, I spoke with Alexander Gabuev, director of the Carnegie Eurasia Center, about Russia's views toward North Korea. Is the state of relations between uh, Russia and North Korea uh, right now, in your view, uh, pretty good? Or are there things that North Korea is doing um, or not doing, perhaps, in the way of denuclearization that is causing strains? How would you describe the sort of the state of bilateral relations and the relations between the two leaders? I think it's, uh, the relationship between, between the two leaders is pretty amicable. It's not deep. They have met once in Vladivostok, but still the channel is established and there is a pretty sophisticated network of channels with the embassy and security services that talk to each other. So Russia has a somewhat good insight of what's going on in Pyongyang as much as any power can have uh, good insights. Russia doesn't have much leverage over North Korea, unlike China. So the economic relationship is pretty small. The official figures for last year stand at a trade turnover for roughly 60 million US dollars. 
we can imagine that the actual number is bigger due to smuggling. At the same time, they understand that Russia is perhaps the one great power in its neighborhood that doesn't ha- that doesn't view North Korea as a sphere of influence, that doesn't seek a regime change, or doesn't seek control over North Korea foreign policy or pace of its domestic reform. So it's interested only in stability delivered by the Kim regime, and that. Pro- provides a certain amount of goodwill. The next recording comes from an interview conducted in July 2021 with David Shin from the National Intelligence University about Kim Jong-un's strategy for survival. Mm. Right. So I argue that, uh, you know, what the North Koreans have always said, whether it's action for action or uh, step by step, whatever terminology that they use, um, should have been uh, accepted, right? Because they're not going to go for a, a big deal, uh, especially if there are conditions up front, like complete complete denuclearization first. Then we'll give you everything. That's not going to work. It has never worked. Uh, so I was thinking out of the Hanoi summit, the U.S. should have taken, you know, whatever they were offering Yongbyon, just to see what the U.S. would get. Why? Well, they wanted a lot of sanctions lifted. Uh, it was arguably making an effect on their economy, on the regime. I make that case even now because you can always snap back sanctions. Um, and what has to be made clear is whatever you come to uh, with respect to an agreement, you have to tell everyone, right? Uh, if you don't follow through, then these sanctions will be snapped back. Um, and I think if you make that kind of a declaratory statement ahead of time, and then you pursue some kind of an action for action program, uh, I think uh, it's uh, you know more likely to succeed than not. Thank you for listening to the China in the World podcast. For more episodes and research, please go to CarnegieChina.org. This episode was produced by Nathaniel Schur with assistance from Shu Yu Lim, Nicola McHugh, and John Lee Yuan. The music was composed by Spencer Barnett.